I'm very grateful to be here today. Uh, I keep saying that Mark and I need to come and visit here more often. We're just right down the street. We live 10 minutes from here. But uh, we have selfish reasons why we uh, head over to Two Rivers uh, to see family. I had a great time the last two weeks to uh, spend some good time with Justin preparing for this message. He's preaching it over at the Two Rivers campus. And in studying with him and talking with him, I've known Justin probably 13 years. We met him just after we moved here to Nashville and the church that we were a part of at that time. And uh, when I heard there was a possibility that he may come to be the lead teaching pastor, uh, I did my happy dance. Uh, you won't see it today, but uh, just, just trust me. For, one, for a lot of different reasons. First of all, he is so unique in how he communicates. And, um, and he is so genuine in what he does. But I just have this sense that if we as a campus and as a church on two campuses really have a passion that we're going to effectively reach the next generation and bring them to Christ, he is a man who can do that, the way he communicates the gospel. So I am so grateful he's part of, of our lives today, and I just want you to know that. Um, I just affirm what... His whole family, what, what a blessing they already are uh, to Margaret and to me. Well, I want to say Happy Father's Day. And I want to show you a picture. It's coming. Yeah, there it is. The man on the far right is my father. That's James H. Matthews. Um, he was a corporate pilot for Mobile Oil Corporation. In fact, if you look at his, that's his airplane. He had just flown in with three corporate executives out of Mobile Oil. At that time, they had their corporate offices in Dallas. And uh, you would always know his plane for two things. One, it had the Pegasus on the side of it. That's the old Mobile logo. Some of y'all remember that. They kind of lost it with Exxon Mobile. I wish they hadn't. But the other thing, if you ever watch my dad take off, about five or six feet off the ground, he he would put up his landing gear. And that was from his military days because he said if he had engine failure, it was a lot easier to belly land an airplane. So you watch everybody take off and you see my dad. And before he's ever at the end of the runway, man, he is wheels up and he is rocking. And, uh, and I loved it. There are several times in my life that I, I have vivid memories. And one of those, uh, or several of those, is when uh, I was invited to be a, a co-pilot in his plane. Now, how cool can that be? Back in that day, uh, mobile didn't require for them to have a pilot and a co-pilot in a plane, just the pilot. And so my dad let me go in there and sit in the co-pilot seat. And I'm just telling you, I, I know what heaven's like. <laughs> to be staring at my dad, listening to him, I had the earphones on, you know. He was saying words I had no clue, but man, he was in total command of that thing. And he would put me in charge of one thing. And I'll tell you what, to this day, I'm proud of that. When he looked at me and he said, do it, I got to switch the tanks, the, the gas tanks. If that wasn't done, we wouldn't get to destination. So that was my job. Man, I'd have three or four or five hours just to sit there and look at that switch and say, is it, is it time? Is it time? 
you know. And, uh, and I loved it. Uh, I started flying uh, in Georgetown, Texas, where I, we started church there years ago in the 80s. And uh, I had a CFI, a certified flight instructor in my church. And so I started flying. And I did it for one reason, because I wanted to remember my dad. I still today can get in an airplane and smell that leather, airplane leather. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That airplane leather, and I smell my dad. It just, it floods me with everything. So I was a pretty cool kid on the block because my dad was a pilot, you know. But right under the surface, you may be like me. Uh, There were some um, pitfalls with having my father as my dad. One is he was never home. I really did not have a father growing up. I, you know, I tell people he flew airplanes eight days a week and 40 hours a day. You know, he just was, I would average seeing my father about three days a week, a month, if that, and that would be a good month. I can remember many times he would, he would drive in from Love Field Airport at 11 o'clock, go to bed, get up at four in the morning, put his uniform back on, head out, and be ready for the corporate people, and they'd fly off somewhere, you know, and I was asleep the whole time. And so I really began to realize that I didn't have something that uh, other friends in the neighborhood had, and and that was an active dad. He wasn't there, you know, for ball games and football and things like that. He finally had a heart attack, and they grounded him uh, from flying an airplane, but that didn't stop him, he started doing, uh, 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 laying oil lines and settling claims out in West Texas for all these oil lines, and they'd take him out there. And my, here's the personality of my dad. My dad could, could literally go out. They could have a rancher that would not even sign a contract and let them have the right-of-way to lay oil, oil lines. My dad would come back with a signed contract, invitation to the annual barbecue, and a trunk load full of watermelon. You know, he's just that kind of guy. At his funeral, all these corporate people came up to me and uh, told me that uh, one man said, I just feel like I've known you my whole life. Your dad talks about you all the time. And I looked at him and I said, I wish you would talk to me. So here comes along and I become a dad. And you'd think I'd learn the lesson in life, but... um, I followed my dad's model, but just in a different way. I didn't fly airplanes. I pastored churches. And I came up with this idea that the more spiritual you are, the more you're out knocking on doors and you're at committee meetings and uh, you're doing things. And I, I was realized one day that I was just duplicating that model. You know, you will do what was modeled for you until, unless you consciously break the chain and say, by God's grace, this model stops here. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So I remember one night I was in Royce City, Texas. You don't know where it is. It's just north of Dallas. But we're out walking in the neighborhood. And uh, Scott and my daughter, Mary Ann, and Margaret and I were walking, and I stopped them. And I did something that I had needed to do for a long time. I looked at Mary Ann and Scott and I said, I want to apologize for not being the dad that I need to be. I apologize for putting church work a higher priority than family. And maybe putting church work sometimes even higher 
priority than Margaret's and my marriage. And I asked my kids to forgive me. And I said, by God's grace, on this street tonight, it stops. And I believe it did. Because the rest of the time, uh, I became very active. I told the church, I said, you know, I've lost the primary love of what I need to be doing as a father, and that is to be raising my children and to be there and be a part of their lives. And uh, hopefully for them, I've been a better model and to show them the love a father has for his children. I don't know about you, but did you put your parents through a lot of things when you were growing up? My daughter called me about two years ago. I just forgot this. Margaret will tell you. I, I got a phone call from her, and, and the, I hear her word. She said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I said, you're sorry for what? She said, God's got a sense of humor, and I'm living out my, the, my pain I gave you through raising my son. I'm so sorry. And I said, honey, you weren't that bad. I said, you were worse. She was our high-maintenance girl. You know, Scott's low-maintenance. Y'all guys know him. You'll probably agree with him. He's pretty low-maintenance. It takes a lot to get him stirred up. Just don't do it. But, but, you know, it's it's funny. We we hand this out generation. I think about what I did to my my parents and my dad and my mom. You know, I was a typical kid growing up and did typical guy things you know, and disobeyed, and it was crazy. But we made it through it, and I survived. I do have a bumper sticker that says, uh, you know, not killing your kids is the the reward for that is having grandchildren. So if any of y'all want to have grandchildren, just remember, you got to keep those kids alive, you know, even though you might want to take them out. But, uh, you know, we we put them through uh, through all kinds of things. But imagine what we put God through as his child. How much disappointment that God has in us sometimes. And sometimes when we walk away and sometimes we know what God wants us to be doing and yet we do our own thing. And we disappoint him and I promise you in my life, I'll just let you determine it for your life, uh, it is more and more and more. I wish it was less than what we did. But, you know, it's interesting, when, I, when, you, when we disappoint God, isn't it amazing that each time God puts his loving, caring, forgiving, gracious arms around us? And he reminds us that he loves us. And he cares for us. You know, Do- James Dobson says the home ought to be a place that uh, when all your kids do everything, just everything breaks loose, there's one place they can go that they know they are safe and they're loved, and that's home. And we have a home in heaven. We have a relationship with God. And when we royally mess up, you know, we have this freedom to go to our Father and experience that grace I told one of my employees as a chaplain the other day, I said, you know, I've got about six or seven three-ring notebooks about that thick just with definitions of grace. Of all the time God's done things for me and didn't do things for me and he loved me and he forgave me. You know, God really is the God of a million chances. Aren't you grateful for that? 
constantly giving us another chance. His grace, it makes it the following uh, verses uh, you know, easy for us to understand and, and to be palatable because I want the, there's a couple of pictures I want to leave you today. One is found in Revelation and in chapter 3. They're very f- familiar, and yes, we've used them for evangelistic efforts so much. But I just want to kind of get you to put the picture of your family and your house into this picture where he says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just also, I, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let everyone who has ears or anyone who has ears to hear, to listen to what the spirit says. You know, God's discipline of us is always out of love. It's always to help us to break out of a lot of poor habits that we may have in our life and habits that have formed and just the very nature of who we are as broken children in his life. And what his passion is, he wants us to, he desires for us to, to break away from that old life and he wants us to become free in him. If there's a theme I want you to see today is that when we are in Christ, and, and that is a phrase that Paul uses many, many times, but when you are in Christ, you are free. Always remember that. Because it will come up in just a moment. You know, what happens is when we finally figure that out, then we come up with a church like it is in Colossae. And we hear Paul writing to them and warning them that uh, that freedom could be challenged. And it is constantly challenged. You know, and so he just, he says, take caution. And he wants to lovingly rebuke those and share these words to the church in Colossae. So today we're in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. And I want to read all those passages together right now. He says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. There are a shadow of, uh, these are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Write that down, just underline. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in aesthetic practices and the worship of angels claiming uh, access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from which the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. You know, if you look at it, the world today um, judges us and bases life on what they see. And the opposite of that is we know who we are because of who we are in Christ. And that's a major difference. The world wants to look at the outward circumstances and, 
as long as we have strong armies and strong government and we have strong uh, business models and we have low self-employment and everything, then life is really good. But when that, when that seems to go away because we put our total faith in it, then we brought back to the reality is that what we're really supposed to do is to find our peace and our worth and our value in Christ. And dads, I will say to you, I, I see it more in men. I see it in some women. But have you, have you ever noticed that when you meet somebody, you know, for the very first time and you walk up to them, one of the first two questions they'll ask you is what? What do you do for a living? Our whole identity is in what we do, not in who we are. And Paul wants us to find our identity in what Christ has done. And what happens in these verses is that false teachers are coming out of the woodwork. And what they're trying to do is say, yes, Christ, but let's add something else. It's the Christ plus religion in life. And so number one, there's a constant challenge. The challenge is that people want to add things to the gospel. Now, Paul's already stated the completeness is, that is found in Christ. And now that truth, he wanted to warn the church of false teachings that would lead them to a Christ plus way of living. I like what John MacArthur, he says, he says it like this. Today with advanced media capability, there's an onslaught of false teaching of unprecedented portions. On every side, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ is either openly or implicitly denied. False philosophy has infiltrated the church in the guise of psychology, which is all too often viewed as a supplement to God's word. Many lean toward mysticism, claiming to receive visions and extra-biblical revelations. Other legalists equating holiness with observing a list of cultural taboos. Either way, it's happening on both ends of the extreme spectrum. And we must practice balance And that what Paul is reminding us to do is to come back to the center. Come back to Christ. Bring ourselves out of the world in him. Build knowledge and practices of what Christ would have you to do. You see what happens with the Christ plus kind of religion, it immediately puts you in bondage. The Christ alone is a, is a relationship of freedom. And so what they're saying is you can do Christ, but if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to add this, you've got to add that, you've got to do all kinds of things. You know, they were saying that Christ was not enough. They needed something more. So there was a special group of heretics believed that they were privy to higher spiritual knowledge, illumination and revolution, uh, revelation exceeding what we know of Jesus' ministry and teaching. They had a disdain for anyone who was unenlightened or less spiritual or just simplistic Christians. You know, I kind of equate it this way, that, that sometimes in our world we have what I call Christian hall monitors. Y'all ever had those in your church? Somebody's laughing. You've seen them, am I right? And they're looking. Uh, she's not dressed like I want her to be dressed. Those young people... They don't talk like we do in our 40s and 50s. I, we, we need to watch them, you know. They're doing things that, that we never, well, actually what we should say is we, we, you're doing things we never got, we would like to have gotten to do, we just got caught earlier, you know, <laughs> is really what happened, you know. 
Or we walk in and, and they just say, they just don't talk like us or they don't dress like us. You know? And we want, to, we want to evaluate someone's Christianity by what we see and not who they are. Aren't you glad that Jesus, when you walked in the building, was just totally focused on your heart and not your out, outward clothes? Tell you a quick story. When in the 70s, I was a music director, and that in itself was exciting. Um, I thought it did pretty good. I don't know. But back in the 70s, we had a coffee house. Have you all ever been to a member of the coffee houses back in the 70s? And some of you all nodding your heads. Uh, older group just nodding and, and just agree with me, okay? They have no clue what I'm talking about. Coffee houses were houses that we bought in the middle of, you know, maybe not the best neighborhoods. And we would just take them and we would, uh, we would fix them up. And then we just open them up to anybody that wanted to come on any night. And they walked in, they'd hear a Christian band. They walk in, they get a cup of coffee. Uh, they would be loved, and it didn't matter how they dressed, no matter who they were. And this was the drug scene of Houston, Texas, I promise you. And there were many nights that hundreds of these kids got saved literally in the streets of Houston, Texas. Because somebody came out of the house, told them how much Jesus wants to love them and how he cares for them and how he accepts them just as they are. Come on in. We'll talk about it. And they came. Well, when they got saved, they, they started coming to our church. And they would sit on about the first four rows of our church. Now, I'm going to tell you what. They were drug addicts. A lot of them were homeless. And they wore what they had on the night before. You should have seen old established Baptist people watch them. Wow. <laughs> you know. But here's an amazing thing. Our church began to love them and accept them and bring them in their homes and talk to them. And it was amazing over the years, their demeanor changed. Their dress even changed. Their hearts changed. And several of those that, you know, were drug addicts on one night are today are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to this generation because somebody loved them and accepted them just like they are. You know, they, they wanted to bring in this new gospel. You know, he, he says in verse 16, Therefore, don't let anyone judge him in regard to food and drink or the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what has to, was to come, the, the substance of Christ. This was tempting because those encouraging it were very influential. You know, he was saying, don't add anything, but they were so influential in the church, they were saying, you can add this, you need this in your life to make you more spiritual. Justin gave this, this term, and I like it, a definition of legalism. He says it's very dangerous because it makes the conforming to tradition or man-made rules the metric by which we measure spirituality or born fruit. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. We are free in him. He says what they're doing is just a shadow. It's the substance of the reality of Christ. Shadows have no substance. Substance is what casts shadows. Shadows point to an object or being of substance. It's what Paul is saying. Jesus is that substance, object, and reality. He said, they're trying to cast a shadow and I, the reality is standing in front of you. You don't have to go find Christ. You don't have to go 
looking for a definition. He stands right in front of you. And he is truth in his life. So this gospel plus doctrine was tempting since new life, you know, was proving to mean uh, bringing on persecution in the church and even early death because there was so much confusion within the body of Christ because so many people were trying to add things. And what that did, secondly, it produced calamity. There was persecution in the church. There was judgment of those who were not personally practicing all these plus things uh, that they wanted them to, to uh, be practicing in their own life. You know, and bring to a reality of the day, on one hand, in some ways we are persecuted and have a constant barrage of the world doing everything in its power to shut the voice of the church down. It's happening all over the place. Um, I find it in the corporate world. I'm a corporate chaplain. And every day I go into a secular world. And uh, we are constantly uh, asked about and challenged, how in the world do you get to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into a secular place? Well, let me tell you two reasons. First of all, we don't tell them, we ask them. Can we share with you the gospel? And kids, you can do that too. You're not cramming anything in anybody's throat at school. If you say, can I just share with you what God's done for me? That's the question. If they say no, then say fine. We won't talk about it. But let me tell you something. The basic thing I found over 10 years is I have warehouses and offices and trucking docks that are full of people who are trying to make some sense out of life today. They want somebody to bring them an answer. And what a challenge and what a responsibility is that I get to build relationships with these men and women. And when they come to the point and asking, they say, you know, what is the real meaning of life? What is, what is, where is real happiness, joy? Um, you know, one young lady came to me and, and she says, I can't make sense of this Bible. So I said, do you own one? She said, no. So I said, let me go get you one. I went out my car, got her a small New Testament uh, believer's Bible. And I said, I want you to take this and read it. And while I was giving it to her, I said, can I share with you scripture uh, to let you know about who the author of this book is? I said, you never understand a book unless you know who the author is. And I said, I want to talk to you about the author. So I've used four spiritual laws, and I gave her you know, an invitation to come to know Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. Here's her response. She said, can I keep that? I said, sure. She says, I'm going to take it to my grandmother. She goes to church all the time. I'm going to let her read it. And I said, fine. Let her go read it. You know, two weeks later, I saw her. And I wish I had this on a recording just for days at our house. But she said, Chaplain, I got to tell you, you're the smartest man I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and I said, wait, just say, let's record that. Say it won't know. Uh, she said, I took all that scripture uh, and that pamphlet to my grandmother who goes to church all the time. And she said, it is true. And I need to do something about it. So in the middle of a 90 degree warehouse floor at one of my companies, I said, would you like right here, right now to accept Jesus Christ? She said, yes, I would. And she prayed to receive Christ. Later found out that she, uh, part of her uh, past is that she went through human trafficking. And she had come through so much abuse and so much uh, 
just instability in her life. And can you imagine what it's like for somebody the very first time to have a foundation in their life on which they can stand that will not move? What a blessing. In all the calamity, we have the certain words. We have a certain life we can share with them. So there are those on one hand that want to shut the church down. But there are others I talked about a minute ago. On the other hand, we, we have hall church monitors, which I call them. I've called them other things. But they want to criticize people, you know, because they don't act like them. They don't dress like them. They don't talk like them. They don't worship like them, you know. And what all this calamity has done, if you've never read him, you need to. He's pretty heavy, uh, Francis Schaeffer. One of the things Francis Schaeffer says, what this has happened is our guilty silence. In the middle of it, the church has been silent. The world moves. It, it moves. It's, it's growing in what it does. But we've been silent. And the truth that needs to be heralded into your world, into mine, you know, is just not being heard. I read devotional, I read devotionals from uh, the U version uh, every week, but this was from two weeks ago, and it really, I knew I was preaching this, so I wanted to keep it. It comes from uh, Culture Collision, Devotions from Time of Grace. It says, one of the sad characteristics of life on this planet in the 21st century is that we have all gotten more tribal. Under stress, we shrink backward into groups just like us. This is bad news for America's etern uh, uh, eternal strained racial environment. The Black Lives Matter movement cannot imagine why anyone would disagree with them or oppose them. Those who advocate all lives matter or blue lives matter uh, see their position as more universally moral. Neither side has much empathy for the other, and so the shooting goes on or the shouting goes on. Then it says Christians have an important role here. We can, infirm, we can affirm the unconditional universal, universality of God's grace. We can teach and live the truth that God wants all to be saved and that all nations and tribes will be represented in the throng of the throne in heaven. We can show the world how to love, respect, and appreciate people just who are not like us, but do it for Jesus' sake. Folks, I think if the church, if we do what we're supposed to do, and that's to be Christ in Christ in a world, to be in the world but not of the world, and we don't have a guilty silence, but we speak of Jesus and we care and we love for people, why in the world would somebody want to start a, a group that isolates them away? Because what they're saying is nobody's listening, nobody cares for us. And we should be the ones who are saying, we are listening, and we do care. In the calamity, they need to hear and see a church and a group of people that says, we love because Christ loves. It also produces thoroughly a constant confusion. You know, culture's message is contra uh, contradictory. You know, while Jesus is the author of confusion, the world is constantly confusing they're racked in a false humility. They're delighting in, like he talks about the worship of angels. You know, Paul fought this because it's very prevalent. It continued to be a problem in this region, this church, all the way up to about 739 AD. Amid the confusion, there was a definite need for families and church to live out truth in what they were doing. 
Paul said, you know, the truth is this. Look what he says in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ, Jesus. And then in Romans 19.9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. As the, at this, I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Folk, what we need is a constant, clear message of Jesus. And if we don't speak it, and if we don't help people understand it, then the noise of the Christ plus or the noise of the world seems to overshadow what we're trying to do. And I'm going to wrap it up today with this, with this thought. Uh, I brought with me today a, a setting of plates. This is the good stuff. It doesn't come out very often. Y'all have that? You know, but it does come out. We usually bring it out at Christmas and Thanksgiving, and we we actually use our dining room. Uh, for a long time, my my son-in-law, you know, he came to the house, and first time we ate in the dining room, he said, "Man, for the longest time, I thought that was a ping pong table. I didn't know it was a dining room." And uh, and he's read about it his whole uh, part of our lives. But let me tell you what I want to challenge you today, and I want to encourage you. Some of you are doing this. And I want to encourage some to do it. And that is this concept of supper. In the middle of calamity, in the middle of confusion, in the, in the middle of so much out there and, and not really uh, knowing what is truth and what is certain and what's absolute. I think there's a need for us, and especially on Father's Day. Fathers, we need to take back supper. You know, if you look back in the Passover and the Passover supper, you know, the family came in and they sat down. The father was responsible for the meal. In fact, all through the Passover meal, uh, kids were noted a marked place for them to ask the father, Father, why do we do this? Why do we serve this? Why do we eat this? And he would give the history of Israel. And that's how they propagated the the, the, do, the doctrine, the truth of Israel and their relationship with God. And so I, there is a need for us, I think, to go back to the concept of supper. Some of you, I would applaud you. Some of you do it every week. You just shut everything down and you all gather at a table and it's just your supper time and you talk. You know, supper tables create activity. Supper tables create questions. But supper tables create safety. It can be the place where these young people or another person in your family says, can we talk about this? And they know it's a safe place they can talk. Or if they come up and said, somebody told me that I need to be doing this. Dad, what do you think about that? And you get to bring truth into their life and to love them. It's also, the supper table is also that place as it was for Jesus where we can come back and we can find forgiveness a million times. Justin and I were talking about this the other day and, and I was reminded of the prodigal son. 
You know, here's the son who sat at the table with his dad. He suppered with his table. But one day away from the supper, he came to his dad and he said, Dad, I want everything. I want my inheritance. I want out of here. I think I can do life better. And so his father gave him his inheritance and he left. You know, if I ever preach that sermon again, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out and ask some of y'all, but I get this impression that once that boy left, that father was at the corner of that road every single day waiting to see if his son would come back. You ever thought about that? The love of the dad? He'd get up early in the morning, he'd get dressed, he'd tell the workers what to do, he'd talk to his other son, he says, if you need me, I'm right out here. And he'd go, and he'd sit, and he'd wait. Son's down there slopping hogs in the middle of nowhere, and he says, you know what, I have it better at my father's just being a servant. Now the servants who weren't, didn't get to sit at the table, the servants served the table. They didn't get to be a part of the conversation. They weren't part of the family. They were there at the beckett bidding of someone at the table. And the son is saying basically to me is, I'm willing to go back and, and I'm willing to give up my place at the table, at the supper table, and just be a servant just so I can be back in the same house. And when he finally came over that horizon and his dad saw him, you know the story, he ran like crazy. And he grabbed his son and he put a robe around him. He put a ring on his finger. But listen to me. He said, you get to sit at the supper table. Your family. How powerful is that? Now go back to Revelation where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will listen, and he will open the door and let me in. In the Greek it says, I will supper with him. If you're here today and you just say, you know, I haven't been the best dad I can be. Let me tell you what. God's inviting you to the supper table. Because there there's grace that's been experienced thousands of times. It may be you have to do the same thing that I did, either here at the altar or sometime today, sit your kids down and say, you know what, I need to apologize to you. I've not been the dad I need to be. Some of you will leave here today and you will celebrate because you are the dad you need to be. And God celebrates with you. You know, when we come to our house on Thanksgiving and Christmas, we get them every other year. You know, your family grows bigger. It's harder to get them all together. But one of the things I was thinking about early this morning is, you know, when we're sitting around my table or our table, I'm not worried about what the noises are going on outside the house. I don't hear traffic. Television's off. I don't hear news. I don't hear opinions. I don't hear Fox or CNN or anything like that. I just hear the noise of my family. And that is so precious. You know why? They feel safe. Safe in the arms of God. 